You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, amen. Such a joy for us to be able to sing these songs together about our faith and be encouraged in our spirits. And, you know, it's always my prayer that no matter what we're going through on this Sunday morning, that our time together is an encouragement and uplifting to us and strengthening to us because we want to grow in Christ and we want to know more and more the joy that he gives us in the gospel. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's word to the sermon text this morning, which is Philippians 1 verses 3 through 8. Philippians chapter 1 verses 3 through 8. I've seen a few new faces today, and I want to welcome you. If you're new to Paramount Church, you're coming in actually at a good time. You're right on the front end of a new sermon series called Connoisseurs of Happiness, as we intend to walk over the coming months uh, verse by verse through the book of Philippians, which is known as the Epistle of Joy. And our ultimate desire is to learn more and more about the happiness and joy and reasons to rejoice that Jesus Christ has given to us. As we look at this text this morning and consider how we can have a happy confidence in God, I want you to consider a few questions. Think about your own life. uh, Think about your own heart this morning. As you think about if you know how to be happy, Do you know how to be happy? Do you know how joy works? Are you good at prompting your own heart to be happy in Christ? This is an essential question for every Christian because the happiness and joy of Christ is at the center of what it means to know and follow him. We were reminded just earlier during uh, our ABF lesson as we considered a, a number of these truths already that the most common commandment in the Bible is to be happy, the most frequent, that we would be commanded over and over and over again to rejoice in the midst of sorrow and hardship, in the midst of ease and comfort, we are commanded over and over to seek after and to pursue and to maximize our happiness in Christ. That really is at the center of what we're intending to do over these months in the book of Philippians. And we have a wonderful help in this letter, the epistle of joy from the apostle Paul, because it is not only a letter about the joy that we have in Christ, it is written by an exceedingly happy person. The Apostle Paul, despite all of his hardship and suffering for the gospel, continued over and over again in this letter and in many other places to give us an example of what it looks like to strive after the joy of knowing Jesus Christ, realizing his promises, looking forward to the completion of his purposes in the world, and resting, resting in the good news of his gospel. So this morning, as we are on a a quest just today for a happy confidence in God, we're going to notice three examples that the Apostle Paul sets for us in this way. The first is this, which we find in verses 3 through 5, that Paul is joyful in prayer. Paul is joyful in prayer. Right here in verse 3, we're reminded of something even that we see at the very beginning of the letter to the Philippians, is the sweet relationship between Paul and these believers in Philippi. If you were here last week, you may remember that the Apostle Paul, in his greeting, gives a, a reference to himself that is a little bit unusual. 
In many of his other letters, he refers to himself as an apostle, and he emphasizes his authority or his role in the church of what God had given him to do. But in this letter, that's not what he does. In fact, instead, he refers to himself as a bondservant, as an under rower, as a servant of all. He expresses in these warm terms his, his love and admiration for the believers in Philippi. This being a church plant of his that he started and and nurtured the people that were there and continues to pray for them and continues to, to pursue their joy with them, even from a prison cell in Rome, suffering for the gospel. Notice what he says in verse three. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy In my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, right from the start of this morning's text, the Apostle Paul thanks God for these believers, and he says that he thanks God for them every time they come to mind. But these believers come to Paul's mind for a particular reason. It's because he is intimately focused on, on the gospel every day. Why is it that these believers in Philippi and many others, as he talks about in his letters, are always on his mind? Is it because, simply, that he's going through a directory of churches in the network that he wants to remember in prayer and he's working his way through his prayer list? Maybe, That may be something that he would do. That's something that many of us do. We make a list of people to pray for, different things that we're concerned about, and we work our way through the list. But here it seems there's something else going on. The reason that they come to mind for him in prayer, the reason that he is thankful for them, is because every day he is focused on the gospel. He is focused on the good news of Jesus Christ. We're reminded over and over again in Scripture that the gospel is not a program of salvation where we keep up with the rules or we reform our lives and we get with the program so that we can be saved, but rather that the gospel is an announcement. It's an announcement of good news without any mixture of bad news whatsoever. The gospel does not point a crooked finger in the face of any sinner to tell them what they should or should not be doing but rather it extends arms of a warm welcome as of a shepherd to come to him because of what he has done for them. The bad news of God's law, which lists all of the commandments and expectations that God has for all of the people in his world, brings bad news. Even though that law is good, it brings bad news to people like me and to people like you who have broken those commandments. That law doesn't offer us any grace. It doesn't offer us any hope. It doesn't offer us any way that we could change our lives or we could earn our way into God's favor. But instead, it only drives us into the dust of despair before God. Because what am I going to do to to please or to impress an infinite God who has all and knows all and in particular knows me? But that's why the good news is good news. Because it comes in to answer the bad news of the law. The gospel comes in with an announcement of what Jesus Christ has done for me. That by grace alone, through faith alone, given as a gift to me by Christ alone, for God's glory alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, he has called us, he has 
changed us. He has caused us to be born again by announcing to us not something that we do, but something that we simply hear. And it takes root in our hearts and it bears new life and it changes everything about us. This is the good news that Paul has on his mind every moment of every day. He is ever meditating on the announcement that Jesus Christ made to him and to the world, offering for sinners like us, for sinners like him, of which he was the chief, that they could come to him by grace. And because he has the gospel on his mind, also coming to mind at every turn are all of those people that he's interacted with around the gospel. All of those people that have been endeared to him, that have been united to him by the good news of Jesus Christ. So as a result of that, Paul prays constantly with joy. He's always praying. He says it right here. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. He's stacking these emphases on top of each other to make this point that at every moment he's reminded of them and he's praying for them and he's thankful for them and his prayers are full of joy. Every prayer, full focus. This is a a, a helpful picture of what we often feel in our own lives in kind of ordinary ways. When something really captivates your mind, it, it is just becomes a part of you. You can't get rid of it. You, you have these things happening in your mind right now. Today, some of you, even while I'm preaching from God's word, and this is not to shame you, it's simply to state the obvious because I do it too, you are thinking about the Super Bowl. <laughs> you are thinking about who will win. I wonder how Mahomes' ankle will be. I wonder if Hertz will come through and prove that, that the, the progress that he's made is real. You're thinking about these things. They're on your mind. The things that matter most to us in the moment captivate us. And therefore, they are swirling around. You may be having this experience when some big event, it could be like your wedding comes along, and you know that that morning it is on your mind and it is filling you with excitement and interest. Or you you think about when loved ones are coming back, they may be coming back from overseas for some time, or they're coming to visit you, and this has captivated your mind. You might be thinking about business opportunities and how you're going to craft your business plan and what kind of money you're going to make, and there's nothing wrong with those things. It simply says something to us about how human beings work. What we love most captivates our minds. It captivates our attention. When we read this letter, knowing that it is the epistle of joy, every mention of joy should perk up our ears. I want you to be looking for this as we work our way through this letter. Look for the words of joy. Look for any word that's synonymous with that happiness, rejoicing, gladness. I have found so much encouragement over the last year reading through my Bible with a pencil and putting a box around every word that's one of those. And it has flown off the page at me. I don't know how I had been so dull for so many years to miss that in my Bible. It's very similar to when you maybe buy a new car. You have some interest in, and everywhere you go, once you have that car, you look around and you see other Honda Accords. And suddenly they're everywhere. Prior to that, you didn't see any of them. 
It's a similar kind of thing. It's been that way for me. It may be like that for you as we work our way through this letter in this way, seeking to be connoisseurs of happiness. Listen to the songs that we sing. We've been singing songs about God's goodness running after us. We've been singing songs about gladness overflowing in our hearts and how joyful we are because of the good news. Well, here joy comes up again in verse 4, always offering prayer with joy. It is the original word used is kara. It's a word that means what you would expect, gladness, happiness, to be in a state of rejoicing. So the Apostle Paul is saying, I always offer prayer thinking of you with gratitude to God, and my heart is full of happiness. I think that means that when the Apostle Paul prayed for the Philippians and and many other believers, because the gospel was at work in his heart, that he was smiling every time he prayed for them. It brought a smile to his heart. It It warmed his heart. And he was full of joy, full of happiness, full of gladness. But notice again that that joy is the result of Paul's focus. Certainly, the Apostle Paul was in tune with all of the churches that he had enormous burdens of concern for. He said that he had, on top of all of his suffering, physical beatings and imprisonments and all the rest, he had concern or a burden for all the churches. The Apostle Paul was intimately acquainted with all the weaknesses of those churches, in other letters, he, makes, he makes more, gives more attention to them. He knows all the bad things that are happening there, and they're happening everywhere. Every church is a mess. It's full of trouble. It's full of weaknesses. But notice what the Apostle Paul's focus prioritizes. He prioritizes the hopeful work of the gospel in every situation. And therefore, he reaps the joy His focus reverts back when he thinks about the Philippians in verse 5 of their participation in that good news. The good news that has made him happy, that has filled his heart with gladness and joy. He thinks of them, and instead of picking out all of their failures, though he is aware of them and he addresses them at the proper time, his priority of focus is on how the good news is at work in them. And it fills him with gratitude, and it fills him with joy. It's what makes his prayer a joyful prayer. It's because of what God is doing in the gospel. It's another kind of sowing and reaping. When we think of that principle in Scripture, probably like me, you think more of things like planting a tree that grows money. You think about how you could sow certain activities or seeds in your life, or you could give uh, effort to a certain endeavor and think about how it's going to monetarily reward you. And that's certainly a way that we think about this. But here, there's a different kind of sowing and reaping. And to be quite frank about it, I think it's a kind of sowing and reaping that probably all of us, including myself, have greatly neglected. It's certainly not to our benefit. This is a theological sowing and reaping. The Apostle Paul has sowing his focus into the good news, looking with hope at the gladness Christ brings through his gospel. And therefore, he is reaping joy upon joy upon joy. How could someone who was beaten relentless, imprisoned many, many times, 
who was scorned and ridiculed, how could he write an epistle of joy, even in the circumstances he faced at that moment? Only because he is reaping the rewards of theological investment in his own heart. He is with discipline focusing his mind. And it's no wonder that he feels joy because actually when you think about the two words that are used for joy and also the word that he comes up a lot in his writings, which is the word grace, central to our faith, the word happiness or joy is kara and the word grace is charis. They're the same root. They are connected. It's as though they're two sides of the Christian coin, grace and gladness, mercy and happiness, love and joy, and they're always working together. They're interrelated. So here's the principle. The more you dive into God's grace, the more that you come to be a connoisseur of the gospel, the more you will be happy. The more joy you will know the more excitement you will have about the life that God has given you and how you can serve him. Even when those trials and troubles come, even in the midst of losses and crosses, you can be happy. This is all a part of Paul's life because of his focus on the gospel. Make no mistake. One of the clearest places that Paul tells us how he works at being happy is 1 Corinthians 9.23. This is a great verse for all of us to have memorized for our own lives, just on repeat in the backs of our minds and hearts. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it, so that I may be a fellow enjoyer of it, so that in the glorifying of God, I will know how to enjoy him forever. The Apostle Paul gains his joy His prayers are full of joy, and his heart is filled with gladness because he knows how happiness works. He knows the gospel is paramount. Paul's spiritual eyes, if you think about it this way, constantly track back to the good news of happiness and hope in Christ. His eyes are fixed on the gospel. And when beatings come, and when prison sentences are handed down, and when there are losses and crosses and temptations and trials that want to pull his vision away, he is diligent to focus them back where they belong. And that is the secret of his happiness. So we could use this very point in our own lives in a simple way. This week, spend some time and take inventory of your own spiritual eyes. Take a notebook and and write down kind of what were your spiritual eyes focused on. Give yourself a kind of vision test. Notice when your eyes tracked away from the good news and led you into another direction, into the place of despair or discouragement or losing hope or fear and worry and anxiety was overwhelming you. And when at other times... By God's grace and mercy, your eyes tracked back to the gospel, back to the gospel, and you found the opposite happening. And that's exactly what you will. Are they tracking with your eyes? Or are they drifting from today the good news of Jesus Christ 
That is a central question. That is a question that is not for today. That's a question that is for every moment of every day. Because the more that your eyes and mine are tracking with the good news, the more that we will know to the glory of God, increasing happiness and hope. And the more that my eyes drift from the good news onto other things in this world or, or other hopes and treasures that somehow take root and become ruling desires in my heart, I will know encouraging discouragement and despair. Do you know how to be happy? Are you able to prompt Christian happiness in your own heart? Friends, you must I must learn to do this. And we pray God will continue working in our hearts to show us this. Paul's focus on the gospel, though, fuels his confidence in life and ministry. And that's what we see second as an example from the life of the Apostle Paul. Is that Paul is confident in God's work. It's yet another kind of secret. There are no secrets. It's all written down here for us. But it's a kind of secret to his happiness and joy. He has confidence in God's work. In verse 6, the very first word is the word for. It's essentially the same word as therefore. And that clever little thing that they teach you in school or in Bible interpretation is you always want to ask, what's the therefore therefore? Why is this word for there? Well, it is asking a particular question and answering it. Why is it that the Apostle Paul is full of joy in his prayers? Why is he an exceedingly happy person, even in the midst of hardship? It is because he says, I am confident of this very thing. The Apostle Paul's vision-tracking focus on the gospel continually fills him not only with joy, but with confidence And it is a confidence, not in what he can do, not in his circumstances, plans, purposes, tasks, program, but it is confidence in God's program, in God's tasks, God's promises, God's purposes, and who God is himself. He says, I am confident. The word that he uses there is the word persuaded. It doesn't just mean that he has kind of a fluffy confidence or hope that things will work out. He says, I am persuaded. This word persuaded is the Greek word pitho or pytho. It's actually a word that's used to personify in Greek mythology persuasion or rhetoric to convince someone of something. This goddess pytho was was a companion of other gods that would try to allure you, like Aphrodite, the goddess of love. There is this persuasive element that is captivating a heart. But the Apostle Paul says something very different about his heart. It's not captivated by fleeting lusts or, or, or earthly loves and desires. He is persuaded, persuaded and confident, he says, of this very thing. He who began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. You see it again. You see Paul's ultimate focus in life. 
is the completion of God's work in the lives of his people, and that is always a gospel work. From the very beginning, it has been a gospel work of grace. From eternity past on into eternity future, God's plan has always been a gospel plan. He's always planned to save his people by grace alone. And it's just been the unfolding of that good news all the way from the beginning of creation through the fall to the redemption of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it will continue on until the very end when he brings consummation or completion to that plan. This is Paul's ultimate focus. And this is what keeps Paul's head above the water. My life and yours often feels like treading water in the middle of the sea. Have you been out in the middle of a pool that's way too deep for you, and you're out there long enough treading water, you know, doing that circular deal with your legs and waving your arms back and forth to try to keep your head above the water? You get tired quickly. And then what starts to happen? You start bobbing up and down under the water line. You see? That's what life feels like. And the question is, how do I get my head above the waterline? How can I have in those moments the confidence that will fill my heart with joy, even in the midst of the churning, even in the midst of, of being in this dark, rolling sea? Because if I start looking out at that, I'm not going to stay above, I'm going to sink. So what is the answer to the Apostle Paul when he is out in the midst of this water of suffering and hardship? It is his confidence that God is going to complete his work. Paul's assurance of God's faithfulness is the very thing that pulls him above the waterline of his many disappointments. The Apostle Paul was not only the chief of sinners, he was the chief of disappointments. He was the chief of suffering. I think I suffer. Look at the Apostle Paul. And this is what keeps him above the water. Surely, if it can keep Paul above the waterline, it can keep me above the waterline. Paul's present happy outlook focuses, focuses on the ultimate happy future of Christ's return. I want you to notice in just verse 6, the, the, the logic. It's logic from the greater to the lesser, from the big picture of the general to the small picture of daily life. Here's how it begins. He says, in essence, God is faithful to finish his happy workmanship in the future. And that's exactly what it is. He's the happiest being in the universe every moment of every day because he is absolutely sovereign and he does whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases, and he is dead set on his own happiness. And he is constantly working and faithful to finish that workmanship. That's a key word the Bible uses. To finish that workmanship in the future. But here's the second part of his argument. As you come down toward daily life, he says in essence then, God completes his work over time. Notice how he says that I'm confident he's going to complete the good work among you by the day of Christ Jesus. That means that he is working in the present moment. This is where we read about um, from Paul Tripp, for instance, in the book, How People Change, about the gospel gap. It's that we, yes, we understand that, that in eternity past, God has chosen us 
to belong to him. And in eternity future, we will be with him once we know him. But what about now? What's he doing now? Are we just waiting around? Are we just trying to, trying to keep treading water until finally he comes and rescues us? But rather, Paul is clear that he is working day by day by day by day by day by day without ever sleeping. In this very moment, he is ministering to your heart. If you are listening to these words and you are feeding on them, he is ministering to you. He is doing a work of service to you. He is discipling you, encouraging you, lifting you up. And he's doing it every moment of every day. Therefore, the conclusion is this. The present is reason to rejoice whatever we see. Because we know that God is working. That's how he can overcome all of these disappointments. That's how he can, he can overcome knowing all of the intimate weaknesses of these churches that he's leading, of his own heart and life, of theirs, of all of the, the failures and troubles and conflicts and all the rest. How in the world can he deal with all of that? Because he knows that God is working in the present moment. So listen to this. Listen to this. Because this is where I have gone wrong in my Christian life many times. It is not enough to simply know the end. It is not enough to just know, well, in the end, it'll all work out. That will not help you today. Not in the ultimate sense. Not in a real sense. It may help you in <clears throat> little moments. But what do you need to know? You need to know that because that's going to be that way in the end, God is working now. He's presently at work. He's not biding his time, waiting for the clock to run out. He is working all the time. You have to know this in the present. In your present moments where, where life and sin and temptation want to steal away the enjoyment of God that he offers you in the gospel, you have to know that he is working now. And he is working with a smile on his face because he is delighting to bring about these purposes among his people. That's why Paul is delighting. That's why he's full of joy. Listen to this a classic text of scripture that always comes to mind, but sometimes we kind of wear it out. Don't let this get worn out. Take it again. Let it refresh your soul. Romans 8, we know that God causes all things in the present to work out together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us today? That's the truth. Because of all that he has done and all that he's promised to accomplish, we know that he is working today. This is present assurance, not that your goodness ran after me, not that your goodness will get me in the end, 
but that your goodness is running after me today. I can't run fast enough. I'm not agile enough to shake him off my trail. His goodness is following you today. So place your confidence in God's workmanship. Take Paul's example and make it a part of your life, my life. Place your confidence in God's workmanship by becoming what we're talking about through this entire series, a connoisseur. Again, that is a person who knows. It's a person who knows how something works. That's why I asked you at the beginning, do you know how joy works? Do you know how to be happy? Are you that kind of person? You, you know how to prompt happiness in your own heart with the truth of Christ? You must place your confidence in God's workmanship and know the kind of work that he's doing. And we can know that. We can know that because he has given us page upon page and verse upon verse to tell us that very thing, declaring to us in love and cheerfulness what he is doing among us, even in the hardest of times and in the best of times. Finally, I want you to see that Paul's assurance of God's purposes leads him to have a certain kind of experience in his heart. And that is that Paul is affectionate in his heart. All of these truths and the, the gladness of Christ that he knows because of the gospel and because he knows God is at work in these very moments produces in Paul an affection of heart. This is, again, it's a beautiful picture of the unity that Paul has with these believers. And the reason that they have that unity is, again, it's all because of the gospel. They had become, as he says, partakers of grace. Verses 7 and 8. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. <clears throat> Joyful, confident, because I have you in my heart. In this day and age, you'll hear very few men say that because we think that that's not very manly to talk about having someone in our heart. But that's what Paul says. I have you in my heart. You belong to me. You are, you are inside of me. You are my heart, my beloved. It's only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. And why? Because they've been united. And look at the, the evidence of their unity. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. They loved him. They were united with him. They cared for him. In fact, here we see that they had sent some kind of monetary help to him in one of his hardest moments. He relied upon them. They are kind of like fellow bond servants with them, and they have each other in their hearts. They are united together in Christ. They're partakers of grace. It gives them this common link that even though they may not know each other perfectly well, they have this common bond. And you know how this is. I know how this is. It happens all the time for me. I'm sure it happens all the time for you. You get on the thing like the Ancestry.com thing, right? And you do the thing and you swab your nose, your mouth, and you send it in. And it tells you all of these people that you're related to. And you know what's most amazing about it? As soon as it comes back, you love them. You don't even know them. You don't know where they live. You don't really know what they look like. But yet, all of a sudden, when you see we share DNA. 
You love them. You belong to them. They belong to you. There's this this unifying principle, this code between you that has brought you together. I have the same experience when I find out somebody's from South Carolina. I feel like, I love you. (laughs) I don't even know you. It's all because of this unity. But their unity is, is something far better than DNA, far better than than state residents or history. Their unity is grace. They know grace. And he knows grace. And when they meet, they are endeared to each other. Because this is what's most important to them. They are mutual recipients of his grace. Paul and the Philippians are united with the deepest of bonds. He's why he calls them partners partners with me in my imprisonment, helping him, partners in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They're gospel partners. It's the thing that they are most concerned about. It's what binds them together. And so therefore, you see a central aspect of our happiness in Christ. This is how it works. It's one another. It's being together. There is no happiness in the gospel, not truly in the gospel in Christ without one another. It's it's how it works. You you cannot have this and be off somewhere else away from other believers. You cannot, friends, you cannot say things like, well, my faith is private to me and I don't think that I have to be in a church to worship God. I I guess not, but it sure is hard and you cannot know this happiness without this. You cannot know it because this is the way it works. He's telling us how it works. And listen to how it works, exactly what it does in him. He says, how in verse 8, for God is my witness. Whoa, big words. He's vowing here. God is my witness. Strike me dead if this is not true. How? That word is a word of, of exultation. It's an exuberant word to express the, the bowels of your soul, your yearning. How I long for you. I long for you. My heart goes out to you. I want to be with you. I want to see you. I want to talk to you again. I want to sit around and pray and sing. I want to go for a walk. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. What kind of affection does Christ Jesus have? A happy one. He is happily affectionate to you. He's cheerfully rejoicing over you. He is never begrudging his affection for you. He's never pouting and sulking because I have to love them again or I have to be around them again. That's not what he does. His affection is gladdening. And that's what Paul says. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is the epitome of happiness. Loving with affection to see your beloved friends. It reminds again of the ultimate source of joy in good times and bad. It is our togetherness in Christ. Therefore, it is imperative that every Christian wherever it is, settle into a good church and work at these relationships. Work at becoming 
mutual knowers, connoisseurs of the gospel, to draw close to each other and love each other. And every healthy church is riddled, riddled with weaknesses and problems and conflicts. That's, that's just the way it works as, to, as well. But we have to have this. We have to fight for this. We have to strive after this. Every person here should be striving after that. You should be striving after community group life. You should be striving after relationships. You should be striving in prayer with thanksgiving. You should be trying to build relationships with other Christians so that you can know the happiness with them that only comes through them. These three things set apart Paul as an incredible example to us, and we'd be very, very wise, and we'd benefit in huge ways if we could adopt them even just a little to be with Paul joyful in prayer, to be with Paul confident, confident in God's work and that his grace and his gospel would make us, we so are lacking so often, affectionate in heart. I need help. God help me. God help me. Help me to know the happiness that belongs to you. Let's pray together. Our Father, We are in such desperate need of your grace and help. We are not blowing smoke about happiness. We are are not making jokes. We are not talking foolishness. We are talking serious theology here. And God, we need you to fuel our theology. We need you to change us because we look in the mirror and we do not see this. We are in need of you to do this for us. We do not know how to be happy. We do not know, really. We really don't know, Lord, how it works. Teach us. Please teach us. Because we look at your word, we cannot think of anything better than for us to fulfill our chief aim. We know what it is, to glorify you by enjoying you. So please help us. We pray that even as we stand now and sing again, our eyes would track with the gospel, that we would, we would take mental note of the gladness in the words that we sing, the hope that we have, and that we would pursue with all of our hearts happiness together in you. That's what the world needs to see. They need to see Christians who know the treasure of their hearts. They love him and are loved by him. And they love one another. We pray for your help in this. We are in desperate need. And so we wait for you to answer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.